Chapter Six of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter Six. Where is Dingley Dell? This question was asked by the curate as the pilgrims stepped into the street at six o'clock on the following morning and turned towards Chatham Hill. "'Somewhere in this neighbourhood said I, not having a very clear recollection of the data given by Dickens for the discovery of that interesting locality. On, or probably off, one of the by-roads between this and the high-road from Canterbury to Maidstone, I fancy. Two miles from Muggleton,' observed the curate with a smile, "'which is not to be found on the map or in any gazetteer,' I rejoined. It belongs to the same category of towns as Eatonswill. Dickens may have had towns in his mind which he disguised under those names, observed our white cravatted companion. Possibly, said I, but he has not given us the means of identifying it, which he so amply provided in the case of Cloisterham. This curious topographical problem could not be solved then, however, as neither of us had preserved in the cells of memory the precise data of the Pickwickians' eventful journey to Dingley Dell, and their subsequent visit to Muggleton. So we reserved it for future study, when such light could be thrown upon it as might be afforded by the novelist's amusing record of the journey, aided by a good map of Kent. The result of the investigation may be given at once, however, while the pilgrims are tramping over Chatham Hill and along the highway beyond, with the green pastures bordering the estuary of the Medway on their left, and the distant woods of Boxley and Morling on their right. Dingley Dell, according to the information given to the Pickwickians by the waiter at the Bull Inn, must be looked for on the circumference of a circle drawn on a map of Kent, at the distance of fifteen miles from Rochester. On the main road from that city to Canterbury, that distance is reached at Judd's Hill, about a mile west of the finger-post at the road leading to Faversham. But Dingley Dell was on a cross-road, and was reached from Muggleton, two miles distant, through shady lanes and sequestered footpaths. Faversham is the only town within two miles of the curve drawn from Judd's Hill to Otterden, Staplehurst, and Paddock Wood, and it must be obvious that the Pickwickians would not have travelled from Rochester to Dingley Dell by byways if the place had been only two miles from Faversham, which is only one mile from the high road. If we extend the radius to the country west of the Medway, it will pass through Tunbridge and Sevenoaks, but we are precluded from that extension of the area to be examined by the consideration that the Pickwickians did not cross the Medway. They appear to have turned off the high road as soon as they were out of Rochester, and the Medway can have been crossed only at Aylesford, a place which excursions to Bluebell Hill and Kitt's Coty House had made Dickens acquainted with, but which he cannot have intended the reader to suppose was passed through by the Pickwickians on their way to Manor Farm. The distance from Rochester to Aylesford is six miles, and the bridge over the Medway is a stone structure while the only bridge mentioned in the narrative of the journey is the wooden bridge near which the carriage broke down 
and which must have been less than four miles from Rochester. It was an hour's walk from that spot to the little roadside public house with two elm trees, a horse trough, and a signpost in front, at which Mr. Pickwick was informed that the distance thence to Dingley Dell was more than seven miles. Dingley Dell, if it is to be found at all, must be sought, therefore, east of the Medway, between the two lines of railway, and west of a curved line drawn from Judd's Hill to Paddock Wood, through Otterden and Staplehurst. And in that portion of Kent, though there may be many spots, the seclusion and picturesqueness of which might suggest such a name as Dingley Dell, there is no town to correspond to Muggleton. All the localities mentioned by Dickens in his narrative of the Pickwickians' journey and their sojourns at Manor Farm must be regarded, therefore, as being equally with Mr. Wardle and the fat boy the creations of his fancy. The village of Raynham, which we reached about eight o'clock, straggles along both sides of the high road, with the church on the right, the lofty tower of which makes it a conspicuous object in the rural scene. We had by this time acquired by exercise a formidable appetite, and a beefsteak, procured from a little butcher's shop on the right-hand side of the village street, and cooked very fairly at a decent little inn a few doors farther on, with a quart of our host's excellent ale, provided us with a substantial old-fashioned breakfast. Invigorated by our repast, we started again, without any more definite arrangement for the day's journey than the understanding that we should dine whenever and wherever our stomachs reminded us that nature required farther recruitment and that we were to sleep that night in Dover. It was one of those fine days which make September so enjoyable a season for the lover of the country, and we strode gaily onward, inhaling the pure air with as keen a zest as we had disposed of the beefsteak and our host's ale, snuffing the fragrance borne upon the light breeze from hop-gardens and apple-orchards, and discussing the merits of novels in general, and of the Dickensian contributions to that department of literature in particular, as we trudged steadily onward, looking over a green and sweet-smelling country on either hand. Through Newington and Bobbing, and on to Sittingbourne, through Bapchild and Green Street, over Judd's Hill, and through Osbringe and Preston, we tramped until the sun, which had been shining brilliantly all the morning, had passed the meridian and we were beginning to think of dinner. Our way lay through a succession of scenes of rural beauty, unexcelled in any part of England. Again and again we passed through a village, with gardens before the cottages, and oast-houses rising in the rear of the farmyards, for every Kentish farmer who has a field sloping to the south grows hops, and the grey tower of the parish church crowning a hill, which was often a mile off the road. Then came hop-gardens, with the pendant clusters of hops hanging in rich profusion from the long lines of poles, and orchards where the red-streaked apples gleamed amidst the foliage, hops and apples combining to load the air with a delicate fragrance. Then a roadside inn, with farmers' wagons and carriers' tilted carts before it, 
and more orchards and hop-gardens, or perhaps a wood, where the hazelnuts and the ripe brambleberries hung in tempting clusters, and the orange-red hips glowed upon the trailing briars. A Kentish hop-garden in the month of September is one of the prettiest scenes to be witnessed in any part of the country. Above a hawthorn hedge surmounting a mossy bank, fringed with the feathery fern, rise the tall poles, each encircled with a luxuriant growth of large dark green leaves and trailing bunches of pale green flowers, each petal of which is charged at its base with golden dust. Up the long arcades of wavering greenery comes the murmur of voices, those of women and children predominating. Presently an open gate is reached, and the wayfarer, looking in the direction whence the sounds come, sees a portion of the ground cleared, and a double line of pickers, chiefly women and children, along the margins of the standing poles, still festooned with the green leaves and trailing clusters of hops. If the pickers are not working at too great a distance from the road, the wayfarer will observe that they stand in two lines, facing each other, and having between them what are called, in the technology of the hop-garden, bins, square receptacles for the picked hops, consisting of wooden uprights and crossbars, upon which coarse canvas, called bin-cloth, is stretched to form the sides and bottom. Men are at work near them, cutting the hop-vines close to the ground with a large curved knife, pulling up the poles and carrying them, with the vines clinging about them, to the bins, which they are laid across at a convenient angle. When the hops have all been picked off and dropped into the bin, the pole is thrown upon the cleared ground, where other poles lie by dozens amidst green heaps of broken trailers of the vine, and another is quickly brought by a pole-puller. Presently a man comes along carrying a bushel basket, followed by another with a sack, and the farmer with a book in his hand. As they pause at each bin, the measurer lifts the hops and drops them lightly into the basket, which he barely fills before emptying the contents into the sack. As he calls out the number of bushels, the farmer enters them in the book, opposite the name of the family or companionship working at that bin, and then the three men pass on to the next. At one o'clock the measurer calls out, "'Dinner time! Three quarters of an hour!' And then the pickers who live in the village hurry to their homes, if the distance is not too great, and those who have come from London or Maidstone sit down in the shade of the growing hops, where there is often a shabby perambulator or two, and perhaps a cradle or a clothes-basket with a baby in it, and open their provision-baskets. Hop-picking in the south-eastern counties of England has one point of resemblance to cotton-picking in the southern states of the American Union, namely that it requires to be begun and completed within a very limited period of time, or the crop will be spoiled. For this reason, the local supply of labour in the hop-growing districts is never equal to the demand, and has to be largely supplemented by the employment of poor families whom the prospect of an unwonted rate of earnings tempts from their homes in the towns, and the vagrants who find the occupation a pleasant variation from mendicancy, and a tent or a barn, a lodging more to their taste than the casual ward of a workhouse, or even a tramp's lodging-house. 
Hence it was that we passed so many groups whose appearance indicated that they were bound to the hop-gardens, in their own phraseology, going a hopping, as plainly as that of the typical grazier did to the sharp cabman, Fide Punch, that he was going to the cattle show. Now it was a middle-aged man and woman, the former carrying a bundle at his back, and the latter a child in her arms, while each held an older child by the hand, the whole only a day or two out from Westminster or Whitechapel. Then a young man, with close-cropped hair, the peak of a greasy cap over his right ear, a very foul and very short pipe between his lips, and a shawl twisted loosely about his throat, a young woman, bold-looking and blousy, tramping by his side and carrying a bundle. Here we passed a pale, forlorn-looking woman, trailing two young children after her. There a group of three sunburnt vagabonds, ragged and dirty, stretched upon the grass by the roadside, smoking their dirty pipes. We had descended the farther slope of Judd's Hill, and were resting upon a felled tree which conveniently lay upon the shady side of the road, when there turned the corner of a lane and came towards us an athletic, sun-browned man, wearing a hard-worn velveteen jacket and fustian trousers, and seeming to have the scent of the hops in his nose, and yet showing neither the foot-sore limp of the town labourer or costermonger, nor the slouch of the habitual tramp. He had about him more of the free, bold air of the gypsy, a suspicion of relationship to which race might have been suggested by his dark complexion. "'Have either of you gentlemen got a match about you?' he asked as he came up, and produced a short smoke-blackened pipe from his pocket. Neither of us was smoking, but I had about me a box of lights which I placed at his service. He thanked me, lighted his pipe, returned the box with another thanks, and stood a few moments to assure himself that his pipe was well lighted. "'You gentlemen seem to have been doing a good tramp,' he then remarked, glancing as he spoke at our dusty boots. "'Did you see much hop-picking going on as you come along?' "'Picking had begun in some places,' I rejoined. "'Well, it is fine weather for it said he, sitting down upon the bank in our rear, which was clothed with the sweet-scented ground ivy. "'Warm for September,' said the most clerical-looking of our party, the one who was not a clergyman, removing his hat and wiping the profuse perspiration from his broad, glowing forehead. "'I've been where it is much warmer in September than it is here,' observed the stranger. "'Australia?' suggested our friend. "'Bermuda,' said the stranger. "'That is about the latitude of Madeira and Algeria,' observed our friend. "'And as the sugar-cane flourishes in the one and the date-palm in the other, they must be tolerably hot.' "'Intolerably sometimes, Bermuda is,' said the man in the hedge. "'I had five years of it, and I know what it is. "'But except for the heat, which aren't so bad when you get used to it, I was better off there than I ever was before, or have ever been since. I didn't work as hard as I have often had to do in this country, and I lived better, and never had to look for my living. Happy state of existence, murmured the curate with a smile. But what took you to Bermuda? Well, 
I got a free passage out and had everything provided for me by government, replied the stranger. To tell you the truth, I got into trouble. The first time in my life, gentlemen, and the last. Leastways as I looks at it, for one thing rose out of another and the beginning of it was a hare. A very common beginning of trouble in these parts, I am afraid, said the clerical-looking gentleman, who was not a clergyman. Wait a bit said the gypsy-looking wayfarer. "'As I am going to rest a bit here, and I like to be sociable, I will tell you the story. It was like this, gentlemen.' He took the pipe from his mouth, and we shifted our seats upon the tree so as to face him and listen to the convict's story. "'It is a good many years ago now, as you may suppose, for transportation beyond the seas has long been done away with. In them days, if a man got a sentence that wasn't long enough to make it worth sending him to the penal settlements in Australia, he was sent to Bermuda, where he had to work upon the roads and the harbour, and any kind of work the government had for him to do. Well, I was standing one day at the gate of my father's cottage when I heard the yelping of hounds in full cry, and before I could move to see where they were, a hare came through the hedge and made for the other side of the road. I happened to have a stick in my hand, and as soon as I see the hare, without a moment's thought about it, I sent the stick flying through the air, just above the ground, and knocked him right over. Hadn't I as much right to a wild animal on the highway as any other man? I thought so anyhow, and I picked up the dead hare and carried it indoors. Presently I heard the hounds coming nearer, and in another minute they come bustling into the road, some over the hedge, some through it, and running about in all directions, yelping and snuffing the ground. "'Oh, George,' says my mother, beginning to be frightened, "'throw the hare out and let them think it has been killed by the hounds. "'Why, it will make us a dinner,' says I, "'a couple of dinners. "'And who has a better right to the game than the man who kills it?' I'd shut the door to keep the dogs out, but presently I heard other voices than theirs, and the door was opened hastily by a young swell in a scarlet coat and white cords. I knew him, and had cause for remembering him, for he gave me a cut with his whip once, when I was a youngster, for not opening a gate quick enough to please him. "'Where's the hare?' says he, for he saw plainly that the hounds were at fault, and some of them was yelping at the door and scratching at it. "'What hare?' says I, standing so as to prevent his seeing it. "'You know what hare well enough!' he shouted in a furious rage, and raising his whip as if he was going to lay it about me. He thought better of that when he saw how I was looking at him, but he pushed past me and got into the room before I could prevent him. "'You get out!' says I, and in another minute he was on his back in the road. "'You shall smart for this!' he cried, shaking his fist at me as he gathered himself up from the dust. "'Wasn't you a-trespassing?' says I. "'Don't you shove yourself into other people's houses without being invited?' Then I banged the door in his face, and I heard some loud talk and a good deal of swearing going on in the road. And then they all went off, hounds and all. Presently comes a policeman with a summons. "'What is this for?' says I. "'Game case,' says he. "'Illegal possession of game.' 
so I had to go before the magistrates to answer the charge, and the young fellow in the scarlet coat swore that he saw the hair in the cottage. "'Will you swear that the hair belonged to you?' I asked him. He didn't answer, but looked at the chairman, and the chairman asked me where I got the hair. I told him I knocked it over on the road with a stick. Six months,' says he, "'and then I was walked off to a cell "'and sent away to Maidstone jail. "'I didn't tell you that my mother was a widow at that time, did I? "'She had bad health, too, and couldn't do much, "'and when I came out I found somebody else living in the cottage "'and was told she was in the union house. "'That's the work of that fellow who got me the six months,' says I, "'clenching my hands and feeling I should like to have him before me.' Then I went to the farmer I used to work for, and found him at his gate. He received me kindly enough, but it was a slack time for farm work, and he had as many hands as he could find employment for. "'I'm sorry for you, George,' says he, "'but I shouldn't be advising of you for the best if I said anything to encourage you to stay here, where every farmer is afraid of offending the gentry in the matter of the game. Take my advice, lad, and get right away from here.' I thought his advice was good, and lest I should come across the young squire and be tempted to give him a thrashing, I made my mind up to start at once, but there was one that I wanted to see first, and I turned down the lane where she lived, but I hadn't gone far when I met an old man who was a neighbour of her mother's. "'Don't go any further, lad,' says he, with a very sorrowful look upon him. "'I know where you be a-going, and it's no good, George.' "'What do you mean?' says I. "'George,' he answered, "'I'd be sorry for you, lad, "'but you had better hear of it here "'than go down yonder and see it. "'It is plain enough to be seen, "'and all the village be a-talking about it.' "'And then he told me how the girl had been seen "'about the lanes and fields with the young squire "'soon after I was sent away, "'and how shame and disgrace had been brought upon her, "'and when I left him, all my blood seemed boiling up into my head. I walked away from the village very fast, determined never to return to it. But unfortunately, as I was making a shortcut through a wood, I saw, coming towards me, the man upon whose head I was invoking curses, as with clenched hands and set teeth I tramped along the narrow path. For a moment I felt a savage joy at the opportunity for revenge that seemed to be thrown in my way, and I stood still, knowing that he could not pass me on the path unless I chose to let him. The next moment I was struggling hard against the temptation, and to avoid it I dashed into the wood. Whether he knew me I was never able to say. He said afterwards that he did not, and that may have been the truth. The path was a public one, but the wood was part of the squire's estate, and there was a board at each end of the path warning those who used it not to trespass. Whether he knew me or not, he dashed into the wood after me, and in a few minutes we were face to face, for when I heard him crashing through the bracken and the brambles, I turned like a stag when the hounds are close upon him. "'So it is you, jailbird,' says he. "'so he knew me then if he didn't before. "'What are you doing in my preserves? "'You were after no good, I'll be bound.' 
"'What have you been after, scoundrel?' I shouted at him, and then I sprang at him, clutched him by the throat, and pitched him into the bushes. As he scrambled to his feet, with his face paler than before and scarified and bleeding, I dealt him a blow with my clenched fist which knocked him down as if he had been shot. I thought I had killed him, so still he laid amidst the bracken, and so heavily he groaned. I stood there, gazing down upon him for a few moments, and then I returned to the path, leaving him where he fell, and walked all night, determined to get out of the county, and as far away as I could. But I didn't get far. Next day, as I was eating some bread and cheese in a little public house, a constable stepped in, clapped the handcuffs on me, and marched me off to the station-house. I thought I saw the black scaffold and old Colcraft waiting, but by the mercy of God it was not to be so bad for me as that. The man I thought I had killed had only been knocked senseless, but that was thought enough to send me for trial at the Assizes, and the judge thought it enough to make it his duty to sentence me to seven years' transportation. That's how I come to know Bermuda, and it was a better thing for me, mind you, than if I had had a year in Maidstone jail, for I worked in the open air in a beautiful climate, and was never so well off in my life as I was while I was there. He rose when he had finished his story, drew a long whiff from his pipe, which he had kept alight by a drawer at intervals, and wishing us good day, strode away in the direction of Sittingbourne. End of chapter 6